I'm Laura DeYoung-Shulman at the Center for New American Security. I'm here with Rebecca Friedman Listener, who is a research fellow at the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, and Mira Rapp-Hooper, a senior research scholar at the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School, both of whom are in the Center for New American Security family. Rebecca as a former next-gen fellow, and then Mira as a current adjunct and former senior fellow in our Asia program. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Hi, Lauren. Hi. As part of the Zach Grand Strategy Lecture Series, CNES is hosting a series of podcast discussions moving beyond the bumper circle level debates on American grand strategy. In the latest Washington Quarterly, Mira and Rebecca have written a fantastic new essay, The Day After Trump, American Strategy for a New International Order, in which they examine the framing of the current order over the last several decades, but encourage foreign policy thinkers to move beyond that to what's next. But it's a challenge for foreign policy elites these days to look up from Twitter or the latest White House scandal, or even move beyond mourning their familiar norms and institutions. Mira, Rebecca, you clearly wrote this piece to shake us out of that cycle. If you could offer one key takeaway from this piece, what would it be? So I would say the bottom line going beyond the sort of Twitter day-to-day and looking to the big picture is that Trump himself is not the problem. And that by focusing too much on Trump as the threat to the so-called liberal international order, we ignore what are much more fundamental structural challenges. So in a way, this essay is a real call to action. We seek to identify what those pressures are, changes in the global distribution of power that exert pressure on the liberal international order from without, changes to domestic politics, as well as long-term traditions of sort of isolationism and unilateralism and what's been called Jacksonianism that threaten the order from within, and the way in which the confluence of these two things mean that in a world after Trump, we can't just return to the status quo ante, and therefore American grand strategy really needs to be forward-looking in defining what a new global order should look like as the orienting principle for foreign policy uh, going forward. I'll just tack on to that to note that we see Trump certainly as a significant catalyst and antagonist in uh, both domestic and international trends, but argue that those were in many ways well underway and had deep roots before his election. And as a result, his leaving office whenever that occurs will not be enough to simply allow us to revert to the same way of thinking about foreign policy that we thought about it before. Um, So we're arguing here that this is a moment of significant strategic reckoning, but also a moment of significant strategic opportunity where strategists and foreign policy thinkers who really care about American foreign policy and the strategy that America uses to approach its role in the world should take the time to think about what we want to do when we have the opportunity to approach international order again, once we move beyond this presidency and to the world that we will face in 2020 or 2024. A line in your essay that I really appreciate is that the liberal international order is an often rhapsodized but rarely scrutinized term. And I completely agree with that. It feels like a bumper sticker that we have latched onto of all that was right with the world in the area pre-Trump and post-World War II without really thinking through what did that actually mean? Who did it benefit? Who did it not benefit? And why are we grasping back to this so tightly? So can you talk through, like, when you wrote that sentence, what was your thinking? How would you define liberal international order? And how should we be thinking about it in a more scrutinized way? Sure, yeah. Liberal international order is in many ways a shorthand, right? To define it, we have to ask ourselves, what is international order generally? Because the liberal international order is one type of international order. And generally, it's a collection of rules and norms and institutions that we use to organize international politics. 
the liberal international order is generally what we think of as being the norms and rules and institutions that the United States and its partners helped to put in place after World War II, beginning in 1945, although it largely had its roots in Wilsonianism and some other prior schools of thought. But when we talk about it, we talk about it as though it is sort of one monolithic crystalline structure, one set of institutions that will either be upheld or will be precipitously broken. And the reality is that this liberal international order has always been dynamic, always been kind of a hodgepodge of different rules and norms that we all helped to put in place as their need was recognized and has been evolving since 1945. It appeared to sort of reach its preeminence with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And in particular, the term liberal international order has really come into favor since the end of the Cold War, when U.S.-led norms and rules and institutions appeared to be triumphant. So part of what we're saying when we lament the fact that the liberal international order appears to be fraying now in the 21st century is that there is no longer uncontested preeminence of American-led institutions, rules, and norms. We have great power rivals or competitors in Russia and China. We have all sorts of technological trends that make these rules and institutions that challenge them. And that basically we feel like these prevailing norms and rules and institutions do not have the strength and power that they did 20 or 30 years ago. And that's both true and it is not necessarily in and of itself a catastrophic tragedy, but rather is a moment to think through what rules, norms, and institutions we would like to have at our disposal to manage international politics in the 21st century as they are today. Order builders of the past have always had to look at the world around them when they decide what they need in terms of international institutions, and the task is the same today. So rather than treat the liberal international order as one thing that can precipitously be broken by Russian subversion or China's island building in the South China Sea or technological diffusion, we're calling on grand strategic thinkers and foreign policy analysts to think of what we would like to have in an international order going forward, giving the threats and challenges and opportunities we see on the global stage. Rebecca, Mira talked through some of these pressures that are uh, on the American system from both without and from within to force us to rethink what America's role in the world should be and our approach to the international order, I guess, post-liberal international order or post the World War II system. Can you describe those in a little bit more detail? We have the erosion of American military and economic and even political power on some fronts, as well as a lot of political and economic forces within the United States that should force that reexamination. My sense is in a lot of ways, people feel like those are things to overcome rather than things to grasp and deal with on their own terms at this point. Can you discuss that a little more? Absolutely. Well, I think Mira gestured at this, but to put a slightly finer point on it, I mean, international order is fundamentally a reflection of the distribution of power in an international system. It is an expression of power. And so the liberal international order, insofar as it is or ever was any kind of monolithic entity, was largely forged in the wake of World War II at a time when U.S. power was at its historic apex. And then it was sort of renewed and expanded in the wake of the end of the Cold War at another point at which U.S. power was at its historic apex. But of course, we can't just assume that U.S. power will always be 
so great in relative terms. And so a large part of what we're recommending is a reckoning with the fact that um, these structural changes really do require new configurations of order that are sort of taken into account um, the United States' continued preponderance at the same time as it doesn't exercise the same degree of hegemony that it might have at other points. So to be more specific, we think about sort of two major types of pressure, pressure from without and pressure from within. And pressure from without, in essence, are those structural changes in the global distribution of power, the recognition that China is growing and that the U.S. is declining in relative terms, especially from that post-Cold War peak, and that also Russia, even as it is itself a declining power in terms of its long-term trajectory, nevertheless has sought out this role as a sort of revanchist spoiler as far as the global order is concerned. So what that means is that U.S. military primacy, as it has existed in sort of all corners of the globe in many ways since the end of the Cold War, is being eroded in some areas in particular, places closer to Russia and China, like the Baltics and the Western Pacific, that are also regions in which the U.S. has long-term alliances. And it also means that as American hegemony erodes, so too will the willingness of our near-peer competitors to tolerate a liberal international order wherein the distribution of benefits don't reflect the distribution of power. And so that sort of fundamental recognition that the distribution of power is changing and that that will necessarily mean some kinds of revision to order is the core of the pressure from without. Looking to history, this has always been a really dangerous condition and one that is often resolved through wars when rising challengers like China seek to change the rules of the game to better reflect their increasing power. We don't think that war is ultimately likely. We, have, we now live in a world of nuclear mutually assured destruction, profound economic interdependence. But there is a real risk of disorder that will impede efforts to manage major transnational challenges. And of course, you can't rule out the possibility that some kind of major disruptive event could indeed trigger some kind of violent conflict. So that's the crux of the pressure from without. Um, but part of the sort of profound challenge that the U.S. faces now is that that pressure from without is coincident with a pressure from within. And here is where Trump sort of as an avatar in particular matters a great deal because the U.S. does have a longstanding America first tradition and Trump's success shows that it can get votes or at least won't deter the American public from voting for a leader or a candidate who advocates those kind of views. And this happens and I think is gaining particular traction at a time where there are real challenges to the domestic socioeconomic compact within the United States that makes these attacks on the core tenant of the liberal international order, things like open trade, open immigration, particularly attractive political targets. Fundamentally, if the U.S. is to continue to play this internationalist role in sustaining the liberal international order globally, we also need to get our house in order domestically and address these fundamental social and political anxieties. And just to wrap, I would say that one area of particular challenge, of course, is the confluence of pressures from within and pressures from without. That is ways in which... Um, authoritarian powers who oppose the United States or oppose the liberal international order can take advantage of these fissures at home and create opportunities um, to intrude and further fragment uh, the U.S. domestically in such a way that impedes our ability to exercise our power and carry out a grand strategy internationally. 
When people think of a grand strategy in terms of its development, they perhaps erroneously think of a smoky room with a lot of old white men and beards pontificating with pipes and discussing like what should our role in the world be without necessarily connecting that to the day-to-day reality of how people live. So that's clearly not realistic, but let's pretend it is for a moment. If we had that gathering of whoever it was that needed to be in the room to rethink American grand strategy, in your mind, what should their first task be? We actually would very much like to pull together a group of thinkers to try to approach exactly the task that you're laying out. And this is not to suppose that they would necessarily be inside the government at this moment, but rather maybe folks on the outside who think a lot about these very questions that we're wrestling here with in the essay and care deeply about the future of international order and want to think about how to make it better and, frankly, more consistent with the world that we face in the 21st century. We see sort of a three-stage process taking place in this gathering of minds, and that consists of diagnosis, design, and defense as we lay it out in the essay. We basically think that the first stage of this process would be to walk through some of these trends that we've talked about here today. Because we feel pretty strongly, as you'll see in our argument, that there are these significant pressures both from within and and without. But national security thinkers should map the landscape of the international system and diagnose the greatest challenges that international order and American grand strategy face at this particular time. So that mapping and diagnosis of both challenges and opportunities is step one. Then we would come to a design phase. So basically contemplating the principles that should guide institutional design going forward. We believe that foreign policy strategists will find that many elements of the current international order are actually quite relevant and still very much useful, but also that others probably require some renovation and are basically sound uh, as part of a future order. We also anticipate that in this design phase, they would also probably find that there are certain rules or institutions that we desperately need that we don't yet have. Um, So this phase two is essentially uh, an exercise in architecture building, assuming you could uh, build an international order perfectly suited to 21st century needs, knowing that that won't be possible, but is, of course, sort of an ideal type. Finally, we see strategists as needing to step back and define the limits of any international order and the limits that it has in advancing U.S. interests, given the uh, threats and challenges that we currently face. In the immediate post-war world, strategists who were trying to plot the liberal international order understood that the United Nations, that U.N.-based institutions could not do everything. Um, And in fact, that's how they came to design American alliances just a few years later. So after thinking through what an optimal international order would look like, we also think that national security strategists have to think about its limits and how the United States can uphold rules and norms and protect its interests even when the order can't do everything for it. So again, the purpose of this threefold endeavor is not to conjure a new international order from nothing. Uh, We both believe that's not necessary and wouldn't be possible, Um, but to create sort of an ideal type map of what institutional order would look like if it could be perfectly suited to this world and then sort of backward induct from there the policy and strategy that would be most protective and advancing of American interests under these circumstances. 
I'm particularly interested in this design question, especially the matter of what sort of institutions don't exist yet that we may need to find ourselves building and for what purpose. What are some of your ideas there of things that may be a big gap that if we just proceeded on our current path might be just inclined to have our existing institutions muddle along some way, but realistically we should be thinking big, thinking new, what is the new way to do business in the future? Well, in terms of that diagnosis phase, this is obviously a fundamental question, right? Mm -hmm. Where are those places where the current international order or the international order as it has existed for the past 70 years is not going to be well suited for the next 70 years? And here, I think we identify primarily the area of sort of major transnational challenges, things where there aren't adequate structures that are in place today, and the likelihood of these becoming major problems will only increase in the future. So here, of course, there are challenges like climate change, where any sort of viable solution is going to have to vertically integrate many different layers of governance from the local level to the global level, while also incorporating non-state actors. Um, Things like emerging technologies, AI and robotics, again, areas where even at the national level, regulatory structures are not keeping up with the pace of innovation and any kind of order going forward is going to have to engage the private sector to a degree that I don't think we've seen um, in any other similar efforts thus far, but also things that are threats that we've come to recognize much more. Terrorism, for example, continues to be a transnational challenge for which there aren't fully adequate global structures, nonproliferation, but it will also apply to areas of state-to-state conflict, right? Things like cyber conflict, space conflict, areas where ideally there will be things akin to the nuclear arms control agreements. They were able to attenuate the intensive intensity of competition in the past and enhance strategic stability. And the hope is that those things will be included to these sort of newer domains of conflict in such a way that the possibility of future war can be diminished as well. So it's multidimensional, but I think if you look across the international landscape, there are quite a few areas where the sort of ways of the past are not adequate to what we see as the challenges of the future and a sort of full audit of where those exist and where existing structures can be embellished upon and where new structures are necessary is absolutely fundamental to this task. And again, I would note that in this design phase, some of this, it really is ideal type analysis, but one that is still very useful for strategy. So we recognize that it may be very difficult to create strong norms and institutions around cyber and AI, for example, at this particular time. But by creating that ideal type, U.S. strategists, even if they can't create those institutions, can backward induct better American policy as a result of recognizing the institutions that they wish they had. I would also add one note to that, which is to say that beyond the transnational themes that Rebecca enumerated, I think it's quite clear that in near-peer competition, that is to say competition with a rising China, A lot of the competition between the United States and China, particularly in Asia, is likely to present itself as competition over order. So certainly over existing rules inside existing institutions, but also in spaces that are currently ungoverned, like cyber or AI, or in spaces where China is architecting new institutions uh, in places that previously were, were something of a vacuum. So there I'm thinking of things like AIIB and the Belt and Road Initiative. So China's rise and China's own efforts to create institutions present for U.S. policymakers big questions about whether we should be engaging in new types of order building 
as part of that competition or whether some other form of strategy is appropriate there. So after the 2016 election, one of the laments of the Democratic foreign policy community, but more broadly, was that if only the American people really had understood what we think America's role in the world is and should be, they might have rejected some of the populist nationalistic tendencies of the president and perhaps been more supportive of some of the institutions that have served us so well over the last few decades. But I think that looking forward to what you're proposing, how would you imagine bringing the American people and frankly, the international community more into this discussion in a way that's going to be useful and acceptable to them so that they may have more inclination to at least understand, if not support, future institutions that are supporting a a global order? Yeah, we see that as absolutely essential. And part of the reason we diagnose sort of the threats to the current international order, both from within and from without, is precisely because there has grown this disjuncture between what the American people understand about our role in the world and what our role in the world is. When these institutions that we associate with the liberal international order were created, you didn't really have to explain to our grandparents why we needed the UN and UN institutions or why we needed American alliances because they had just lived through World War II. And the idea that we should never repeat that devastating conflict was second nature. And for those of us who are, you know, relatively young strategists in the Washington policymaking community now, this all still makes perfect sense because we've studied this stuff, right? We've selected into this field. But for everyone else, it's actually perfectly reasonable that you don't automatically connect the dots between, let's say, American membership in TPP and the rise of China or American prosperity in Asia, right? The role of that connection has become attenuated. Part of what we are suggesting that we do here is think about American strategy and 21st century institutions in a way that reflects American interests that should necessarily be easier to explain to the American people because they're appropriately suited to the world that we face in the 21st century. So that, frankly, it's a lot easier to explain why we need to do X, Y, Z to guarantee the American people the peace and prosperity they elected their leaders to secure for them. I would absolutely agree with that. And I would only add that I think another piece of this is to also take the populist, nativist, nationalist challenge seriously and to do so on its own terms. And in doing so, to recognize why it is that that has gained so much traction in recent years. Um, And I referenced some of this earlier on, but there is a reality that underlies these social and political anxieties that many Americans do feel. U.S. manufacturing is diminishing. The middle class is shrinking. Those are realities for many Americans. And so even though that's not what we're perhaps most comfortable thinking about as foreign policy strategists or what we're best equipped to think about as foreign policy strategists, a sustainable American grand strategy is one that must take seriously those concerns and seek to address them. And so there's sort of, in some ways, an implied domestic pillar to this project that we're outlining as well, which is one that considers how U.S. domestic policies, economic policies can work better for the American people in such a way that, you know, the international order does deliver for them in a way that's more immediate and also in such a way that their sort of individual concerns, their pocketbook concerns, 
things that people are talking about in their communities and concerned about in their communities don't become so concerning such that they are either amenable to these populist-type challenges or feel that the U.S. can no longer afford to play this global leadership role, um, which we see as so vitally necessary. We fundamentally, at our core, see domestic politics in this country as both constraints and enablers of American foreign policy and grand strategy. And just to take an example that we discuss in the piece, fundamentally believe that the role that trade played in the 2016 election, for example, right, with both candidates of the major political parties coming out soundly against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, despite the fact that so many of us inside the Beltway think it was a great idea, as actually having been an avatar in a lot of ways for the rapidly changing nature of work in America and the fact that neither major political party offered appropriate solutions to assuage those concerns. We believe that we can't have the sort of ideal type foreign policy or grand strategy that we might like to have unless it makes sense and is consonant with the domestic themes that are motivating voters. So the decoupling that has happened between our understanding as professionals of the liberal international order on the way that matters in domestic politics is part of what we're suggesting we have to right-size through this exercise. And of course, this isn't just an American problem, right? If you look across the Atlantic Ocean at our friends in Europe, they're suffering from many of the same challenges. And traditionally, the Europeans have been the United States' most important partners in growing, sustaining, um, and in many ways, building the liberal international order as we know it. Uh, And so in order for them to also remain the vital partners that they have historically been, Europe faces an equally, if not greater, challenge itself to redress its own kind of domestic ills and economic ills in such a way that Europe can also stand as a pillar of the order going forward. Well, Rebecca Listener, Mira Raphuber, thank you both so much. The Day After Trump, American Strategy for a New International Order is out in the Washington Quarterly. I hope you check it out. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you.